our topic is full preterism a damnable heresy. Is full preterism a damnable heresy? I'll define preterism in a moment, what full preterism is. In our text is Romans 8, 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs and together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. I'll explain that later. <coughs> Full preterism, also known as hyperpreterism, or pantalism, is a teaching that has grown in popularity over the last 30 years. And it really doesn't exist in the modern church until the 1800s. Full preterism teaches that everything prophesied in the New Testament about the second coming of Christ has already been fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 by the armies of Rome. The second coming, the rapture, the final judgment, the beginning of the eternal state, the consummate kingdom, we are told, has already taken place. This viewpoint has been emphatically rejected by the historic Christian church throughout its whole history. It explicitly contradicts all the Christian creeds, confessions, catechisms, statements of faith that discuss the second coming of Christ, the bodily resurrection, and the establishment of the eternal state in which sin, death, suffering, disease, and all the effects of the fall have forever been removed. <clears throat> it not only contradicts the Westminster Standards, the Heidelberg, uh, the Helvetic, the uh, Augsburg Confession, the Lutheran Creeds and Confessions, it contradicts the ancient, the, the ancient churches, the post-apostolic churches' statements of faith. It contradicts everything. It's totally outside the pale of historic Christianity. It contradicts so many fundamental teachings of Scripture and so clearly violates the analogy of Scripture that we are justified in labeling it a damnable heresy. And we must not extend the right hand of fellowship to full preterists until they repent. Now I know is the fact that there are OPC churches and PCA churches that have taken full preterists into, into membership, you know, where they're serving them communion. Well, that just shows the corruption of the, these churches, that they would do that. It's either out of ignorance out of just, or this, the extension of loose subscriptionism. It's, it's terrible. They deny the resurrection of the body. They redefine all these things out of existence. <clears throat> so let us look at why it is a damnable heresy and in the process learn or review many crucial biblical teachings on eschatology. <clears throat> Whether you don't care about full preterism or not, today you're going to learn a lot about the resurrection of the body. The Bible emphasizes it, it teaches it. And I'm talking about our physical bodies will be resurrected. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to First uh, Corinthians or Revelations uh, or other passages, I, but I got pretty far, so I might have to visit this again. So let us look at the, the biblical teachings that deny it. First, <coughs> why it's a heresy. Full preterists deny the literal bodily resurrection of the dead. Because they believe the resurrection of saints took place in A.D. 70, 
and it is an obvious fact that a little or bodily resurrection of all those who are physically dead has not taken place. They must reinterpret all the passages that speak of a literal bodily resurrection. In terms of a spiritual resurrection, or regeneration only, or they'll say things like, well, yeah, God created the resurrected bodies, these spiritual bodies, and they're in storage, and as each person becomes a Christian, they get their new body. They, they teach, I know it's crazy stuff, but it's really popular. You'd be surprised how it's really being, become popular. They believe that the physical bodies of Christians are essentially irrelevant to salvation and will simply stay in the ground forever. The Bible teaches that your, your actual body that decayed will be resurrected. They don't believe that. They just believe you'll just get another body. Your old body stays in the grave and rots. Your old body will turn to dust and stay that way. So Jesus saves man's spirit but leaves the body to rot like useless trash. Such thinking is radically unscriptural and is essentially a form of Neoplatonism. Okay, Platonism teaches that the spirit is good, the flesh is bad. They have a negative view of material substance. Now let us look at the biblical position and learn why the salvation of Christians includes both body and soul. Number one, how did God create man? Well, God created man as a spiritual being, as having a spirit and a true body. We are physical beings and we have spirits. And he blessed them. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. That includes our physical bodies. This is before the fall. There are two things about the creation of man that are noteworthy for this discussion. A, before sin, death did not exist. If Adam had not sinned, he would not, he would not have died spiritually and physically. Physical death is a result of sin and is part of the curse. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. And of course we know, Galatians chapter 3, Jesus had to die physically to endure the curse of the law. Obviously, salvation in the fullest sense of the term, the biblical sense, must involve elimination of every aspect of death spiritually and physically. unless you're a Neoplatonist. Therefore, if physical death never ends, one cannot biblically claim that salvation in its fullest sense has come to pass in history. And then B, in addition, <clears throat> the gracious promise of the covenant of works in the garden regarding a perfect and perpetual obedience leading to eternal glorified life, where sin and death would no longer be possible, where Adam would receive a glorified body incapable of sin or temptation or sickness or death, renders the idea of the physical body as not included in our full salvation as absurd and unbiblical. If Adam had not sinned, he would have been glorified. He never would have experienced death at all. So this idea that the physical body is irrelevant something like trash that can be, just be tossed away, is nonsense. And we could add to this the saints 
who never die physically. Enoch, Elijah, Christians who are alive at the second coming and are raptured and meet Christ in the air <clears throat> as he returns physically to earth. Their physical bodies are not set aside to rot or disappear, but are transformed, glorified, made spiritual, etc. Okay, we believe in transformation of the body, not replacement with something completely new while the old body rots away into dust forever, which is what they, the full preterist, they deny the resurrection of the body. That's a heresy. Full preterists follow one error uh, with another because fundamental heresies must be supported and sustained by perverting other crucial truths. And I didn't do this. I tried to keep this short because I wanted to cover all the passages. Uh, but their arguments on how to get, how they try to circumvent these clear teachings, these clear passages, and the clear expression of Christianity since the beginning, uh, are so creative and fanciful, it's ridiculous. <clears throat> Full preterists teach that God created death, calamity, suffering, tragedy, and sorrow into the very fabric of the creation before the fall. Did you hear that? Before the fall. In other words, the creation was not really good, as God proclaimed. Outside of the garden, we are told, and I wrote a book about this about 20, 20 some years ago, and where I go into all the detail, I have all the quotes from their books, that they teach that evil existed outside the Garden of Eden. Nature was red in tooth and claw, hurricanes, tornadoes, natural disasters, abounded, killing millions of animals. Many openly argue that evil existed before the fall. So we should not be surprised that evil existed after Jesus' redemption is completed or realized in history. They believe that the end comes in AD 70. That's a terrible teaching, that evil existed before the fall. <clears throat> Such thinking is not only radically unscriptural and heretical, but also blasphemes, for it, made God, it makes God a direct author of evil, not Adam who rebelled against God and committed sin. We're told in the Gospels, Jesus said that God cares even about the sparrows. God cares about animals. God did not create suffering and pain and disease and death into the fabric of creation, and, and, and he certainly wouldn't have called it good. But according to full preterists, he did. One cannot claim that the whole creation is very good while it contains death, suffering, disease, severe pain, calamity, and sorrow. Full preterism is stupid, satanic nonsense. They posit an earth where God's wrath against sin is in full action when sin does not yet exist. They do. And the reason they teach such nonsense is because they deny the resurrection of the body. And if you deny the resurrection of the body and you, and you teach a Neoplatonic view that the body is not important and can be treated as trash and is not ever saved, then you logically have to posit that death existed already because they don't connect physical death with sin. 
Paul refutes their worldview in Romans 8, 19-23, where he teaches that the salvation of the whole creation, including our physical bodies, uh, exists. Uh, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So the creation fell because Adam fell. The creation was corrupted because Adam fell. It was Adam's fault. And the deliverance of man by Jesus will include a deliverance of the creation. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we all shall have grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. <coughs> and we'll deal with that passage later. Number two, the Old Testament scriptures explicitly teach a resurrection of the physical body from the dead. And that is why the Pharisees believed in a literal bodily resurrection. That's why the Talmud, the Mishnah, and Josephus all taught and showed that the Jews, the conservative Jews, the, not the liberal Sadducees, believed in a literal bodily resurrection. Perhaps the earliest explicit reference to an eschatological resurrection comes from the pen of the patriarch Job. This is Job 19.25-27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I <coughs> shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Joseph is covered with deadly disease. Looks like he's going to die. And his so-called friends are accusing him of doing evil and deserving this. And he says, I, I look forward to the time when my flesh will be redeemed. His body will be redeemed and he will behold God. He will behold the Christ to come. Although this passage is difficult in Hebrew and has resulted in a wide range of meaning uh, of translations, conservative Bible-believing scholars agree that it presents a graphic picture of the resurrection of the body. <clears throat> Job looks with faith toward the living Redeemer, who will vindicate him in the resurrection of the body. Job looks with faith toward the living Redeemer, who will vindicate him. Job looks, um, this will happen in the last times of all, in the close of time, at the end of the world, when he comes to judge the quick and the dead. Upon the dust in which he is now soon to be laid, into which he will certainly be rescued by Christ and vindicated because he has true faith. He's saved by Christ, the Christ to come. In Daniel 12, 1-2, we have a passage which speaks clearly about a simultaneous bodily resurrection of the righteous and the wicked from the dead. I'm going to read 1-3. to At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to, the, to that time. And, it shall be, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Dan, uh, so the final resurrection of the righteous and the wicked from the dead was a special consolation to persecuted Jews. 
as Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Paul also grounded his hope in the resurrection of the dead. Acts twenty four fifteen, First Corinthians fifteen fifty four to fifty eight, First Thessalonians four thirteen to eighteen, etc. <clears throat> the righteous await to a resurrection of life and the rewards of grace, while the wicked arise in their sins into er eternal loathing and agony. Consequently, suffering for Christ and His kingdom is wise, right, and definitely worth it. So our eyes must be looking forward to that great day. And I want you to note the striking resemblance between Daniel 12.1-3 and statements made by Jesus about the final resurrection of the body. Here's Daniel 12.2 again. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Here's John 5.28-29. The hour is coming in which all those who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Virtually all commentators and theologians of the Christian Church throughout all the ages have regarded these passages as plain statements about the final resurrection. And I believe in Arabic, <coughs> I should have wrote this down, uh, the word dust has become, that's what they call their cemeteries. The place of dust, the place where you reside in the dust. And of course you rot into the dust. That Christ understood Daniel 12 too, as, a, as a reference to the final resurrection is demonstrated by his probable allusion to Daniel 12.3 at, at the end of the parable of the tares. Note, note the, diff, the similarities. Daniel 12.3 Those who are wise shall shine like lampusinos in the, in the uh, Greek Septuagint, the brightness. Lampotes of the firmament. In, uh, in Acts 26.13, Paul will say the brightness of the sun. Lamproteta tu elio, forever and ever. Ma Matthew 13.43, then the righteous shall shine forth as eklampusin os, the sun in the kingdom of their father. And that's S-U-N. Where does that come from? That's an allusion to Daniel. Now keep in mind, that Jesus argued for the final res resurrection against the Sadducees who denied a literal bodily resurrection. We'll look at that in a moment. Here's another one, uh, Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Awake from what? Awake from the dead. If you're already a believer, you've already been awakened spiritually, you've already been regenerated. So it can't refer to that. It has to refer to coming out of the dust, to coming out of the grave, to a literal bodily resurrection. In the psalm, David describes himself as a righteous man who earnestly desires the grace to be kept in a righteous and to, desires the grace to be kept in a righteous and holy manner of life, even though he has enemies who desire to oppress and circle and tear him apart. David seeks God's loving kindness and deliverance from those who, are, who will rise up against him. His inspired prayer closes with a great statement of faith in God's complete love and salvation. David will be, behold God's face and enjoy his presence. <coughs> and this is uh, described as occurring after the consummation in many passages of Scripture. David will receive perfect and complete satisfaction when he wakes from death in his resurrected body in Christ's likeness. Here's another one, Isaiah 20, 25, 8. 
He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And of course, uh, this is alluded to in Revelations. The passage is applied specifically by Paul to the resurrection of the saints in 1 Corinthians 15.54. See Hosea 13.14. Paul, following a common Greek Septuagint idiom, translates the Hebrew word forever as victory. The coming of Christ and the resurrection and glorification of the saints results in the abolition of death itself. After God says in verse 7 that he would destroy, literally swallow, the veil or covering that represents the sorrow and suffering of the nations. Jehovah uses the same verb to tell us how their suffering and mourning will cease. God, through the death and resurrection of Son, will put away sin and conquer death forever. Full preterists do not really believe this great truth. They don't believe in that. Things continue on as they were. They don't believe in the conquering of death. Isaiah 26, 19. The dead shall arise, my dead bodies shall arise. Awake and sing, you that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast forth the dead. In verse 19, we see the answer to the implied question of verses 17 and 18. Isaiah gives an inspired response that God will restore what the saints have lost. All the godly people who have lived and died without seeing the victory of the, the, victory of the Messiah will rise again out of their graves. This verse is not intended to be taken figuratively. The statement, my dead body shall arise, emphasizes that the dead are bodies or corpses. Isaiah is not speaking merely of spirits in the place of the dead. But of the raising of physical corpses out of the dust. These saints arise out of the dust and come forth out of the earth. As in Daniel 12, to dust is the place of the dead. Where do you go when you die? You're put in the ground. And of course you turn to dust. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Number three, the teaching of Jesus is especially explicit regarding a literal bodily resurrection from the dead. And I, this is just so clear. And this is why the historic Christian churches always taught the resurrection of the body, the literal resurrection of the body. And this is just, it amazes me that full preterists could deny this. And that's why they have to twist scripture so much. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Okay, so the word body here has to mean a literal physical body. It can't mean the spirit. But rather fear him, that is God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So this passage is only comprehensible if our Lord and his audience believed in a literal bodily resurrection. If there is no bodily resurrection, why would Jesus say this? He couldn't say this. It wouldn't be true. But what do we know from Revelation and many other passages? The evil are raised out of the graves. And then they're cast into the lake of fire. Both body and soul will suffer together. Not simply the soul, but body and soul will suffer. The whole man is redeemed by Christ, and the whole man is punished by Christ. That a physical body is certainly in mind is proved by the co comparison of the soul or spirit, which is immaterial and cannot be destroyed by man and the body which is physical, and can be killed quite easily. You can use a bullet, you can use a knife, or a, or a hammer. 
In Luke 14, 12 to 14, Jesus speaks of believers who do good works on earth without receiving anything in return as those who will be rewarded or repaid at the resurrection of the just or righteous. <clears throat> this passage is totally incompatible with the full preterist concept of the resurrection being either only a spiritual resurrection, such as regeneration, or their idea that the resurrected bodies, these spiritual bodies that, that are simply a replacement, your dead bodies stay in the ground forever, but this idea that in AD 70 God created a bunch of bodies and put them in a closet, so at, at, as a Christian dies, he gets that body. Complete nonsense. It's all speculative nonsense. It's not in Scripture at all. John 5, 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of condemnation. So this can't simply refer to regeneration. In this passage, Jesus teaches the following. A. A specific time is coming in the future when there will be a general resurrection from the dead. This teaching, by the way, is so clear that it is openly admitted by J. Stuart Russell, the greatest of the full preterist scholars. He's from the late 1800s. He says, quote, There can be no doubt that this passage refers to a literal resurrection from the dead. End of quote. B. This resurrection occurs by the call or order from the exalted mediator, Jesus Christ. C. The resurrection is universal in scope and includes all men who have died, whether Christians or non-Christians. D. This literal, bodily, universal resurrection of all men is followed by a de declaration of judgment. Those justified by Jesus have glorified life eternal. Those who die in their sins are condemned and cast into the lake of fire. Full preterists cannot explain away this passage without completely ignoring and thus perverting what it says. It's not a, these passages are not difficult passages, and um, I've a, a lot of commentaries on 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 uh, Matthew and other passages, and John. I I probably more on John than anything in Romans, and. Uh, all Orthodox scholars believe this is referring to a literal bodily resurrection. John 6.39 This is the will of my Father who sent me. Of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Now this passage refutes full preterism for the following reasons. A. Christ is speaking of the whole body of the elect, what, we, what theologians call the invisible church. Every elect person throughout all history is referred to and not simply believers in Israel. Consequently, he is speaking of all the saints who lived and died throughout all human history. B. This means, therefore, that the expression the last day cannot be restricted to the last day of Israel's existence as a covenant nation, which is what full preterists want to teach, but must refer to the last day of human history or the preconsummate order. C. No resurrection of Christians occurred in A.D. 70, so this inspired promise of God's Son could not have been fulfilled in A.D. 70. This point is crystal clear. When Christ speaks of something being universal, when Christ speaks of something including all the elect, 
you can't restrict it to AD 70. And there was no resurrection in AD 70. Now, when Christ rose from the dead, to, to show as a literal sign to the Jews the efficacy of his resurrection, his death and resurrection, to save and to lead to eternal life, glorified eternal life and resurrection of the body, there was a, a group of people who came out of the tombs and walked throughout Jerusalem. But that didn't occur in AD 70. And that resurrection was just a token, just to show, a sign to show the power of his resurrection. Those people probably lived and died. It was not a glorified, glorified eternal life resurrection. It was just simply a bodily resurrection, a sign, a miracle. Full preterist attempts at circumventing this passage by teaching that God created glorified bodies for saints that are then placed in storage somewhere for each future believer's death is non-exegetical. It's, it's simply a made-up doctrine. It is made up out of thin air like Jehovah's Witnesses' uh, secret coming of Christ during World War I. In addition, it has to deny a literal resurrection for everyday real Christians die and are placed in the grave. They do not receive their new bodies in heaven. That is not a resurrection. Remember, they don't believe in a real resurrection of the body. They believe in simply a replacement. They, don't, they believe that your body stays in the grave forever. They don't believe in... They're Neoplatonists. They're not Christians. In John 11, 21 to 27, we have the account of the literal bodily resurrection of Lazarus. You're very familiar with that. What is significant in this narrative is that when Jesus tells Martha that her brother will rise again, <coughs> she assumes that her Lord is speaking about her brother's literal bodily resurrection at the last day. There's no way in the world you can twist that and say she's not referring to his dead body. <coughs> she obviously does not believe in the full preterist position, but, a, but accepts a real bodily literal resurrection at the end of history. And this, of course, makes sense, for this was the belief of the fundamentalist Jews, the Pharisees, and is explicitly taught in the Old Testament scriptures, as we've already seen. And it is also the explicit teaching of Jesus, and she was a follower of Jesus. If she was wrong, if she was positing something that was wrong, which is what full preterists teach, then Jesus would have rebuked her false teaching, but he does not. Our Lord does not rebuke her for teaching wrong doctrine about the final resurrection, but supports it. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Now, it can't refer to regeneration here, because if you believe in Christ, you have already been regenerated and you have eternal life. You possess eternal life. But what happens to believers? They get old and die. They get cancer and they die. I know Christians that have died of cancer. I know Christians that have died in car accidents. But they shall rise from the dead. They shall live. This statement cannot be explained away by full preterists. Christians die physically and their bodies go into the grave. Their souls do not die, but immediately go to heaven to be with Christ. Jesus saves the elect both body and soul. And our Lord's miracle of raising Lazarus from physical death proves that his promise about a resurrection unto life out of the graves in the future is absolutely true. There's just no way to get around these passages. They are so clear. The ancient church and all the Reformed churches and the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran churches, they all teach a literal bodily resurrection. Full preterists are teaching something that is basically like a cult. It's just totally false. 
Matthew 22, 23 to 32. Now, I'm not going to read it all, but you can look it up later. In this account, we have the Sadducees, who were the liberals of their day, and they denied the resurrection of the body. They come to Jesus to attempt to refute his position of the literal bodily resurrection of the dead out of the graves. If Jesus accepted the full preterist position, why would they come to him and try to argue that his position is wrong? They would have nothing to disagree with because he would deny the resurrection of the body too. But he accepts the resurrection of the body. Jesus obviously accepted the fundamentalist or pharisaical position of a literal bodily resurrection at the end of history. Or this account would not exist. It would not be, make any sense. If Jesus accepted the full preterist position, that there would, be, there would be no reason for the Sadducees to object. Because full preterists do not believe in a real bodily resurrection. Now, if you read this account carefully, you will see a few noteworthy things. A. The Sadducees assume a bodily, literal resurrection for their argument against it is based on marriage. Look, if people are resurrected, let's say your wife dies. Then you get married again, she dies. You get married again, she dies. When you come out of the tomb, when you're resurrected, which one is your wife? That whole, that whole thing assumes a literal bodily resurrection. <clears throat> you know, obviously pure spirits cannot have sexual relations, so they're teaching a literal bodily resurrection. And then B, Jesus does not deny a literal bodily resurrection. He assumes it. His answer assumes it. But he points out that marriage and procreation are no longer a part of life in the consummate kingdom. We will live like the angels who do not have sexual relations, who do not get married. He doesn't say that we'll be pure spirits like the angels. We will be like angels in our, in our behavior. In the, in the consummate kingdom, after Jesus returns, there is no marriage anymore. The command to populate the earth and have dominion over the earth, salvation's been fulfilled. That, that's no longer necessary. There will be no more marriage. There will be no more propagation. In addition... We will learn from 1 Corinthians 15 that our physical bodies are transformed into perfect, glorified spiritual bodies. And I, I won't be able to get to that today. I just ran out of time. So I might have to come back and revisit this. We also have the example of Jesus in his own physical resurrection from the dead, which they think is not significant at all. They think, well, that's just a unique thing and has nothing to do with us. Nonsense. In the New Testament, we learn that our union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection is the basis, the foundation of our regeneration. A spiritual resurrection out of spiritual death. And our physical resurrection and glorification. And the glorification of the body is taught in many passages. Those who are justified are sanctified. Those who are sanctified are glorified. He is the captain of our salvation. And his resurrection is the reason that we arise out of the graves unto glorified life. Jesus came out of a tomb with the same body in which he was buried. Remember the tomb was empty? God opened the door? God opened the door not so Jesus could get out. He could go through walls. He opened the door so the disciples could go in and witness the empty tomb. There was no body there. He arose in the same body in which he died. He did not discard his physical body like it was trash, which is Neoplatonic thinking. He told the disciples to examine his body and said, A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Luke 24, 39-40. 
In John's account, he shows him the scars on his side, the scar on his side, John 20, 20. Our Lord even eats fish and honey in their presence, Luke 24, 41 to 43. Yet even though he rose literally in the same body, his body was transformed and glorified. He could pass through walls. We not only see that the resurrection of the body is literal, but we also see what a resurrected, glorified human body is like. And once again, Paul's going to go into detail in 1 Corinthians 15, which I unfortunately didn't have time to get to today. Paul talks about there's different kinds of flesh. And then he talks about glorified flesh of the resurrection. <clears throat> the resurrection of the body in a body of flesh is guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection in a body of flesh, real flesh, real blood, real bone, with the scars of the wounds visible. And that'll, according to the Westminster Standards and the Creeds and Confessions, that he's going to be the divine human mediator. He'll be like that forever. He was capable of being touched and handled and eating food. At his ascension into heaven, Jesus did not discard his real body, his flesh and bones. He did not discard it as is clear from Acts 1.11, Philippians 3.21, Revelation 1.17, etc. Since the resurrected believers will be like the risen Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.32-42, Philippians 3.21, 1 John 3.2, etc., they too will be raised with bodies of flesh, glorified flesh, spiritual flesh, flesh that cannot suffer, get sick, die, or even be tempted to sin. There will no longer be sin, there will no longer be suffering. Only in this way is man saved in his totality and able to live on the new earth with his new body. Our physical bodies are raised yet made immortal and glorified. We have spiritual physical bodies and are not pure spirits like the angels. If we simply became spirits in some Neoplatonic sense and our bodies stayed forever in the tomb, then the salvation would be incomplete because Christ saves the whole man both spirit and body. He doesn't save part of man. Now thus far we have seen that full preterists deny a literal, real, bodily resurrection. They teach that a secret resurrection happened in AD 70 where bodies are stored in a giant closet or somewhere. Or they simply attempt to substitute regeneration, which is a progressive throughout history act of the Holy Spirit for the literal bodily resurrection at the end of history. Both of those things don't work. One is purely speculative. It's just made up out of thin air. The other one, the Bible makes a very clear distinction, and Jesus himself made a very clear distinction about regeneration and the final resurrection. They have to ignore that because it contradicts their heresy. This denial of fundamental Christian doctrines causes them to teach that death, evil, calamity, violence, and bloodshed existed prior to the fall of Adam, another exceptionally evil heresy. The, the whole world, after the six days of creation were over, God declared it all to be very good. If there were hurricanes and earthquakes and animals tearing each other apart, you know, people don't realize animals suffer. Animals have sorrow. 
when an elephant dies, all the other elephants gather around the dead body and mourn for like three days. They mourn. This is a fact that's been studied. They mourn. Now, is it like our mourning? Well, of course not. We're rational creatures. They're not. But they do mourn. They do suffer. And if you say that's part of the universe before the fall, then you're teaching that God created evil. And God did not do that. Man did. God is, man is a free agent, free secondary agent, and God is not responsible for man's sin. <clears throat> they, are also, they are clearly outside the pale of orthodox, Bible-believing, confessional Christianity. They are damnable heretics who create their own autonomous theology. Now let's look at Paul. And we're, unfortunately, we're not going to finish Paul, but he's quite clear, as, as Christ is clear. Another instrumental exegetical difficulty for the full preterist is sound in Paul's explicit statements where he implies that his understanding of the resurrection of the dead is virtually the same as the non-Hellenized Jews and Pharisees. Note the, note the following. Acts 23.6, but when Paul perceived that part of the Pharisees, part one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Was Paul a Pharisee? Yeah, he was. He was raised a Pharisee. Now here Paul sought to divide the council by appealing to his affiliation and then to a major doctrine that he held in common with the Pharisees. Disagreement over this doctrine greatly contributed to division and contempt between these two parties. Paul presents himself as a faithful defender of the Pharisees' doctrine of the resurrection. The Sadducees were the modernists of their day, and they rejected the biblical teaching on the resurrection, on the existence of angels, and spirits. What did the Pharisees believe regarding the resurrection that Paul could hardly agree with? <clears throat> well, according to Josephus, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the, the body. A literal bodily resurrection. That's the Jewish War 2, 8, 11, and 14. Jewish Antiquities 18, 1, 3 to 5. They believed that the soul would return to the dead body, which would be raised, and the saints would rule in the kingdom of, of righteousness with the Messiah. The ultimate triumph of the Pharisaical understanding of the resurrection of body within Judaism can be seen as the strong teaching uh, in the strong teaching of the Mishnah that says, uh, this is Sanhedrin 10.1, he that says there is no resurrection of the dead has no share in the world to come. You deny the bodily resurrection, if you're a Sadducee, if you're a liberal and you deny the bodily resurrection, you have no place in heaven. You have no place in the world to come. Act 20, Acts 23.6 raises the obvious question. If Paul were a full preterist and rejected the resurrection of the body in favor of only a spiritual resurrection, or a national revival of the Jewish nation, or the setting free of spirits from Hades, that's another one of their views, so they could float up to the third heaven, could he have, which of course is totally unbiblical, <coughs> could he honestly have appealed to this concurrence with the Pharisaical teaching on the resurrection? And the answer is, of course not. So either Paul held to the Christian Orthodox teaching on the resurrection of the body, or Paul lied under oath to God in a court of law. And we know that Paul would not have done that. Here's another one, Acts 24, 14 to 15. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which we call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. 
believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope to God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Once again, identifying his view with the Pharisees. In these verses, we find more statements by Paul that contradict the full preterist paradigm. In answer to Felix, Paul openly admits that he is a Christian, but in doing so, he implies that Christianity is founded upon and logically flows from the law and the prophets. It comes directly out of the Old Testament. In other words, Christians are the true Jews who have faith in the Holy Scriptures. Then Paul says he has the same hope in God that the Jews also have. He's obviously speaking of the vast majority of Jews who follow the Pharisees on the doctrine of the resurrection. <clears throat> then the apostle identifies this hope. There will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So Christians and the vast majority of Jews in the first century had the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead in common. They disagreed on how to go to heaven. They disagreed on how to be saved. They disagreed about Christ. But they agreed that there will be a general resurrection of the dead, both of believers and unbelievers, both of the, those who are declared just and those who are unri unrighteous, that have not had their sins forgiven. As we've noted from the Talmud, the Mishnah, Josephus, we are speaking of a literal bodily resurrection, not the eisegetical fantasies of full preterist heretics. Here's another passage. Acts 26, 6-8. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God day and night, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why would it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? This passage defines the resurrection of the dead. In verse 8, it's plural. He's not simply referring to the resurrection of Christ. He's referring to the resurrection in general. This passage defines the resurrection of the dead, plural, in terms of the resurrection of Christ in verse 23. See 1 Thessalonians 4.14, 1 Corinthians 15.20 and following. Note that Paul defines Israel's hope in terms of the Savior's resurrection. The Old Testament scriptures taught the Messiah's victory over death, Isaiah 25.8, and the resurrection of the saints to everlasting life, Job 19.25-27. We also looked at Daniel 12.2 and Isaiah 26.19. If this is the hope of Israel, and Paul defines this hope in terms of a bodily resurrection, then he supposed that national deliverance of Israel in A.D. 70, or a release of souls from Hades, cannot be the resurrection of the dead to which Paul was referring. Paul was trying to convince Agrippa of a literal, physical resurrection. He was not bringing up metaphors that would be incomprehensible to the governor. It's, it's, I think it's very likely that Agrippa was a Sadducee. Now we come to Romans 8, 10 to 8. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So if you possess the Spirit of God, you will be raised from the dead, because you're obviously saved. In verse 10, Paul describes the present state of a believer. Although this verse has its difficulties, it, along with verse 11, could be paraphrased. But if Christ is living in you, then, through because of sin, the body must die. Nevertheless, because you have been justified, the Spirit himself life is alive within you. 
And if that spirit, namely the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, is dwelling in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will, on the day of the resurrection, impart life also to your mortal bodies. He will do it through the agency of the spirit who is dwelling within you. These verses, especially verse 11, completely refutes the full preterist attempts at redefining the resurrection. The immediate context point to physical human bodies. The resurrection of Christ was a literal bodily resurrection, and the phrase mortal bodies in verse 11 clearly is not intended to be taken figuratively. The apostle is speaking about a future resurrection of believers from the dead. And this interpretation is proved by the following considerations. A. All true believers have already experienced a spiritual resurrection the same the moment they were regenerated and turned to Christ. Although our sanctification is founded upon a union with the Redeemer in his death and resurrection, it is a lifelong process and not a one-time future event. Paul always speaks of the new birth as a past event in the life of the Christian, Ephesians 2, 1-5, Colossians 2, 11-14. B. The comparison of the resurrection of Jesus to our own future resurrection means that God will raise us just as he raised Jesus. This teaching is common in Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians 15.23, 2 Corinthians 4.14, 1 Thessalonians 4.14, etc. C. In this passage, Paul is not focusing on the mystical union of believers of the Savior as a source of new life, regeneration, for example, but rather on the Holy Spirit's presence as the guarantee with the Savior as a, new sor as a source of new life, but rather the Spirit's presence as a guarantee and agent of our future bodily resurrection. The life we have already obtained through Christ will ultimately result in a complete triumph over death itself. Physical death. Not simply spiritual death, but physical death. Even though we will die physically, our bodies will not continue under death's power. These mortal bodies shall be made alive by him who raised up Jesus' body and shall be glorified like Christ's body, Philippians 3.21, etc. We are wholly redeemed, body as well as soul. Having been created as embodied spirits, God will complete his work in us and will bring it to perfection also in our bodies. I consulted 40 commentaries on this. They all agree, although Calvin tends to think it refers to sanctification, but he's the only one. 39 out of 40 agreed that this is what the passage means. There, there were no commentaries that I have that teach the full preterist position. None, not one. Because it's not the historic Christian position. It's simply not. And it violates what the text, the text plainly teaches. We must not neglect the fact that man was a physical whole at his creation. Man was not created to be an angel or to exist as a spiritual entity. Thus the resurrection of the body is necessary in order to reconstitute man to live once again as he did originally in the paradise of God. Although, albeit, with our new resurrected glorified bodies will be incapable of sin, will be incapable of being tempted, will be incapable of falling, will be in, and therefore uh, we will live forever without suffering and death because there, there can be no sin. So we're actually a, in a better position than Adam was. Adam was perfect and sinless and righteous and holy, yet he had the ability to be tempted and fall. That, that will be gone with our new glorified bodies. Our souls and bodies will be made spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15. The use of the word mortal, thnetos, clearly refers to weakness, corruptibility, and mortality of our physical bodies as a result of sin. The adjective mortal means subject to death. And that's how we use the word today. 
I'm a mortal man. That means I'm going to die someday. And that's how it's used in the New Testament. That's how it's used in the Old Testament. Once a person truly believes in Jesus, he is no longer subject to death spiritually because the Holy Spirit seals him and preserves him spiritually through his whole life. And I've got listed here about 20 passages. Moreover, this word, or one of its forms, occurs six times in the New Testament. Romans 6, 12, 8, 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 53, and 54, 2 Corinthians 4, 11, 5, 4, etc. In every single example, it is speaking of our physical bodies. It is speaking of our physical bodies. Since believers already possess everlasting life, John 3, 15, and 16, and 36, and 5, 24, 6, 47, 10, 28, 1 John 5, 13, 14, etc., and are already raised from the dead metaphorically or spiritually, regeneration, Paul in read Ephesians chapter 2, it's, it's compared to a spiritual resurrection. The only thing about us, uh, the only mortal thing about us is our physical bodies. If you get hit by a car and die, you, you're dead. You're, you're a mortal person, even though you're saved and your soul will go directly to heaven. Because of sin, our bodies grow old. They wear out. They get sick. They die. Then they rot and they turn to dust. But because of the redemptive work of Christ, who died physically and rose, he was cursed of God, and our possession of the Holy Spirit, our bodies will be raised immortal and incorruptible. See 1 Corinthians 15, 53-54. And then I'm running out of time. I'll just do one more passage. I might have to revisit this because Corinthians is so important. And Corinthians super explicitly contradicts their views because Paul talks about different types of flesh. There's the flesh of animals. There's the flesh of humans. And then there's the flesh that we receive as resurrected saints, which is incorruptible. Romans 8, 22-23. And this was our text we read this more, uh, first. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with bird pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. We eagerly ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the resurrection of our body. <coughs> in Paul, uh, in Romans eight nineteen to twenty two, Paul perso personifies the whole subpersonal creation and discusses its subjectivity to subjection to futility as a consequence of the fall, as well as its longing to be set free from its bondage to decay. Nature was subjected to the fall because of Adam's sin. But nature will be delivered from the bondage, from that bondage, and will participate in the glorious liberty of God's children. Okay, redemption is full, complete, perfect. God saves the elect, and he saves the whole creation. Okay, so the idea that Christ came in AD 70 and sin and death still continue, and that's why they have to teach that it can, was existed before the fall, uh, clearly, explicitly contradicts Scripture. <coughs> then in verse 23, Paul, with a strong emphasis, we ourselves, that's emphatic in Greek, we ourselves, adds Christians to the creation that is groaning. Because Christians have the first fruits of the Spirit, they long for their full redemption to come. The gift of the Holy Spirit to believers is a pledge of subsequent salvation in all its fullness for believers at the second coming of Christ. 
All Christians have the Holy Spirit and are regenerated and are declared righteous by God in the heavenly court. But there is a sense in which their salvation is incomplete in this life. There is the struggle we have every day of our lives with our flesh, our sinful natures. Why do we have to pray for forgiveness every day like the Lord's Prayer? Why do we have to do that? Because our sinful natures, we have sinful thoughts and do things that are wrong. We sin. Therefore, First uh, John chapter 1, we have to confess our sins. Jesus taught us to confess our sins every, every day in the Lord's Prayer. Also, our physical bodies are subject to infirmity, suffering, and death. Consequently, we groan within ourselves and long for the redemption of our bodies. The expression, the redemption of our body, refers to our body's deliverance from death, corruption, and the grave. The word redemption is used instead of resurrection because Paul is emphasizing the deliverance of our physical bodies from the effects of sin and death. Unbelievers will experience a resurrection, but their physical bodies will not be redeemed. Our bodies, which are fallen, weak, corruptible, and which are the seed of our sinful natures, are going to be transformed into glorified, spiritual, incorruptible bodies that cannot be tempted, cannot sin, and cannot die. Can't get sick, we can't suffer. In, in Revelation 20, it emphasizes, uh, talking about the second coming, it emphasizes there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more death. It's all going to be over. The glorified state is without sin, without death, without suffering, without disease. The consummation of the redemptive process is waiting for the transformation by which the body of our humiliation will be conformed to the likeness of the body of Christ's glory. See Philippians 3.21. And it is for that consummation that the sons of God look to. This passage of scripture is very clear and is exceptionally difficult to twist and pervert into the full preterist paradigm. And I wrote a book on this over 20 years ago. And if you want to go on my website, reformedonline.com, and read the book, I deal with all the insane, ridiculous, absurd ways, scripture twisting of the full preterist to try to get around these passages. They have explanations for all these passages that are so ridiculous. This is what happens when you adopt a heresy. When you adopt something that contradicts the word of God and contradicts the Christian faith, that contradicts all the creeds and confessions of historic mother church throughout all the ages, then you have to try to explain all these passages out of existence. And you can only do that by twisting scripture and imposing eisegetically your heretical of view on scripture, and that's exactly what they do. Since believers are already regenerated and made holy, justified and sanctified definitively, that is, delivered from the dominion of sin, Romans 6, 2-22, what are believers groaning about or looking forward to with hope? See Romans eight twenty four. It must be something they do not already have. It must be something they already do not possess. Consequently, the redemption of the body, soma, must refer to a deliverance from our physical mortality and corruption. And once again, I, I've got a ridiculous number of commentaries on Romans, and they all agree on this. They all agree. When you have a position, full preterism, when you have a position that is rejected by every branch of the Christian church throughout all of human history, and then you have it. You see it appear in the, the 1800s after 1850. Uh, in the 1800s, Stuart Russell, who was a, a brilliant man, but he believed everything occurred in AD 70. When you have something that you cannot justify by traditional, historic Protestant exegesis, the historical grammatical way of interpreting Scripture, but you have to in, 
twist and insert things and speculate like like Jehovah's Witnesses do, then you, you have something that's totally heretical and de deadly and dangerous. We can't extend the right hand of fellowship to full preterists. They're heretics. They're damnable heretics. They are not Christians. And if you care, if you know full preterists, and I do, I know people that were elders in solid Presbyterian churches who are now full preterists. And that's sad. That's no different than somebody becoming a Mormon or somebody becoming a Roman Catholic. You're stepping off historic Christianity into the abyss. So this is a warning. I might come back and revisit the passages I didn't get to, because 1 Corinthians 15 is devastating to full preterism. It's devastating. But, and so is Revelation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you, Lord, for that glorious resurrection from the dead, a literal bodily resurrection. Yes, we're not stuck with these bodies that get old and decay and fall apart, get disease and die. We're not going to be stuck with these bodies that, that have the flesh and are tempted to sin. And we're constantly swimming upstream against the inclinations of the flesh and fighting against it constantly and dying daily. Oh, we'll be delivered, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for a real, full salvation, both body and soul. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us, for you have given us, we will receive new, glorified bodies. Thank you, Lord, that all those Christians that we know who have died, whether through disease or old age or calamity or accident or whatever, even murder, they will all rise glorious and have bodies that are glorified and holy, righteous, that cannot sin, that cannot get sick, that cannot die. We thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.